Welcome to StarTalk All-Stars. I'm your host, Heather Berlin, and I'm a neuroscientist and professor of psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. I'm here with my co-host, Chuck Nice. Yes. Thanks for joining us today, Chuck. It is good to be here. Always. Always a pleasure to be oh, with you. I love, I love yeah. chatting with you. Yeah, it's the best. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, tonight I think we're going to take questions from our fans on mental health and the brain. Yes, we are. So, what do you have for well, us? we got a ton of good stuff here. And mental health is always a wonderful, one of my favorite topics, yeah. you know. And hmm, before I even uh, get into our questions, is there a difference between mental health mm-hmm. in terms of illness yeah, and then just good mental health in terms of maintenancing your your emotional health so uh what's kind of the difference between like you know somebody who's suffering from a mental illness Mm -hmm. which for some reason we still have a stigma attached to in this country i don't know why but and and somebody who was just trying to i don't know find a good balance and good Mm -hmm. like psychological equilibrium yeah i mean we can all so it's a spectrum i mean there's no First of all, there's no such thing as normal. There's no normal. Okay. Okay. That's a good thing. There's, you know, variations on different dimensions, on different um, sort of affinities to different types of emotions. And so so we look at the people on the extremes and there's no even specific cutoff. But if we say that your, um, let's say it's your thoughts or your behaviors that are becoming detrimental to yourself and to others and you can't stop even though you want to, you know, at some point we call it, we label it as a mental illness. Now we, mental health, we can all work to become a little bit more balanced. You know, we all have our own specific sort of psychological profile right you know i could work on being less neurotic for example um <laughs> if my you husband say, would so say my husband would say i don't know i beg to differ but you know um you know i've i have certain anxieties like i have a, a fear of um i'm claustrophobic right you know so i could work on that to develop better let's say mental health so nobody is perfect there's no i've never met a person in many years doing clinical work and research who's the really just normal everybody has something so whether we then to call it an illness has to do with how extreme uh the problem is basically mm-hmm. but we all have something nice so that's good to know you're not alone okay nobody you're not alone <laughs> all right we all have something that's a perfect yeah i'm gonna get a bumper sticker we all have something we all have something mine is not communicable <laughs> well you know we all can improve in in little ways i think it's it's throughout the lifetime you know you never yeah. stop learning how to be uh, a better person right and to help you know improve your mental health absolutely all right well let's take our first question this is from um Kila Silvis who uh, comes to us from Patreon. She is a Patreon patron. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you're a Patreon patron, that means that uh, we uh, will give your cosmic query or your query, uh, your mental query in this respect, uh, priority because you support us financially and, and we're whores. All right. Um, <laughs> you can work on that. <laughs> exactly. I think, I think a better, 
I think I might need a better uh, description of why we why we give you priority. Okay, uh, she says I'm Keila Silvis from Minnesota, and this is my CQ uh, for the brain. I'm a neuroscientist Uh-oh. in the University of Minnesota's medical discovery wow. team on addiction. Oh yeah. Ooh, look at this. Yeah, yeah. The stigma surrounding addiction in America breaks my heart, and the ongoing criminalization of that disease infuriates me. Mm-hmm. How can or should scientists communicate to lawmakers that the opioid crisis must be solved with medical and public health interventions, not aggravated with mass incarceration? And it, it, clearly, when you incarcerate somebody, you make that problem even worse. Oh, absolutely. Because the, the, if, what drug uh, addicts do in jail mm-hmm. is... Get drugs. Right, right, right. <laughs> because what drug addicts do, no matter where they are, right. is get drugs. And now you're putting them in jail with other addicts. addicts. And it's just not the best environment to right. be putting. So, look, I mean, addiction is it, it's a physiologic problem. So I think a lot of people look at it, people who are addicts. And it's not just to drugs. There's behavioral addictions as well. There's okay. people who are pathological gamblers mm-hmm. or um, shoppers. And they right. just can't seem to stop themselves. And we look at the neurophysiology in the brain. And the same circuits are involved in behavioral addictions as are involved in um, addictions to drugs. Okay. It's it's a physical problem, right? So it's like saying to somebody, you know, if you have, I don't know, diabetes or something, you know, and or something where you crave sugar, let's say, or whatever, that you need to be locked up for that because that behavior is illegal. That is absolutely not the way to deal with it. Now, it's a larger societal problem. I mean, how do we change the stigma? What, so what the general public thinks is that it's a failure, it's a lack of willpower. Right. Drug addicts have a lack of willpower. A character flaw. A character flaw, exactly. Now look, the initial decision to, let's say, um, do an illegal drug, I don't know, whether it's cocaine or something, mm-hmm. maybe that's a poor decision to right. start out with. But who you doesn't know, make poor decisions? Right, I mean, exactly. And usually it happens when you're, you're a teenager, when actually your prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed and you don't make really the most adaptive Best decisions. Best decisions no matter what. No, no, you're risk-taking, you're sensation-seeking. Then there are other people who are just prescribed opioids because they had a car accident or they just got out of surgery and who wouldn't have otherwise sought out drugs. But then their body, they become behaviorally addictive. And, and there's also, you know, there are genetic differences and there are certain people who actually have more proneness to addiction, like let's say alcoholism. We see a genetic factor there. Absolutely. So it's about looking at this as a medical condition and treating these people rather than incarcerating them. And, and I think that, you know, it's, that has to start at the lawmakers, you know, that's outside my kind of pay grade, but I think it's important for people in the healthcare and neuroscience um, fields to really make that public, that this is a, this is a, a medical disorder. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I agree that, well, of course I agree because everything you said is absolutely right. And it's correct. Uh, but I agree with um, Keela that it is heartbreaking. And I think that it's because for so many years we had this thing called the war on oh, yes. drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the war wasn't on drugs. This is what people don't right. understand. Right. The war was on drug addicts. Because you have people who are compelled to seek out and consume a substance Mm -hmm. because they are addicted. And addiction is not, I want to do something because it feels good. Mm. Addiction is just the opposite. This thing is ruining everything in my life and I can't stop doing it. I don't want to do it. 
yet I'm doing it. Yeah, because, you know, you have withdrawal symptoms, right? So it's right. maybe in the beginning, in the early stages of addiction, you're doing it for sensation seeking or it feels good right. or because to cover up some psychological pain. Right. You know, I think really where to start is to help people who come from hard circumstance, whatever, give them mental health treatment. Mm-hmm early on mm-hmm. right and that might help even prevent the drug seeking behavior it, you know everyone look people become addicts for many different reasons right but what you just said is a wonderful um, um, view because and I say this to people all the time I've, I had an argument with someone who said I understand if somebody was given painkillers because they had an injury like they were in a car accident and they had a back right. problem or something and then they got hooked on painkillers okay right. but if you just start doing drugs well then that's your fault and I'm just like well Suppose the pain of life right. for somebody is yeah. just as real Absolutely. as the pain of being well, in a car wreck. Or, or, or sometimes worse. Or worse, right. Worse. You know, the psychological pain. I don't know, you lose a, a parent early on or, you know, you don't have the opportunities that other people have and your life is a struggle and it's, and it's you know, or socioeconomic reasons or, you know, there are a lot of things that... Um, and put people in situations where they seek a, a, an escape, mm-hmm. you know, from trauma, whatever it may be. And and so, you know, it's about this assigning blame, like it's your fault. And right. that we need to also get away from blaming That's people. what people want, blame. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that person's not to blame because they were prescribed it, but the other person is because they made that choice. Whereas you don't know where that person was coming from and how much pain they were in. Right. All right, Keela, what a great question to start things off. And uh, if it really makes you feel that bad, you should go get high. <laughs> Great advice, John. Great advice. These are jokes. Please, please do not take me seriously. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our next question. And this is uh, Conrad Weiser. Ooh, Conrad Weiser. Nice name. Yeah, or or Weiser. Okay. Yeah, oh, you, know, you were doing the German part. I was doing a, yeah, you know, Weiser. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Can, depre- can depression uh-huh. be pinpointed to a specific place in the brain, mm-hmm. um, a la the prefrontal cortex or the hippocampus? Mm-hmm. If so, uh, does this help the way scientists create drugs? How far off do you think we are from finding a cure for issues like this? Wow. That's a lot. That's of, a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, that is God. a lot. First of all, you're talking about localized um, uh, maladies in the brain mm-hmm. uh, that express themselves in um, an emotional uh, uh, problem. And then the treatment and drug use to actually pinpoint that area of the brain. Right. Wow, that's a lot, man. So it's a lot. So this, I have a lot to say in this here. Okay, so, good. So um, we'll take each, okay, first of all, each disorder is different. There's different neuro, um, anatomical and neurochemical underpinning, underpinnings to each different disorder. Okay. But if we just take depression as an example, right. there's no one place in the brain where depression is or one place in the brain where things go wrong. Mm-hmm. We know from various different studies, um, pharmacological studies, neuroimaging studies, um, even brain lesion studies, that there's a circuit that tends to be more involved in depression um, we, we we think that there, and then within that circuit there are certain regions that we always see seem to come up when somebody is depressed really now one specific region um, that someone um, named um, Helen Mayberg found was something called the anterior cingulate which is in the prefrontal cortex of the brain it's one sort of what we might call like a hot node like a hot zone that's always coming up in various studies but it's within a circuit 
that's that's involved in depression. And then there's all the neurochemicals involved. Okay. It's very complex. If if it was as easy as, oh, there's this one spot in the brain, then we would have a much greater chance of just going in and treating it. So, so now is the circuit a like a a signaling issue or is it a chemical transference issue or well, chemicals are what send the signals in the right. brain. So usually if it's a chemical problem or a neurochemical or an imbalance of certain neurochemicals, um, it affects the signaling. Okay. Right? Okay. So it's all intertwined. Wow. So, you know, there's, there's connectivity issues. So some people want to target the neurochemicals. Some people want to target, you know, the white matter. So, so the other problem with drugs that you just take orally is that, they don't necessarily, they, they, let's say you take a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, mm-hmm. um, but there are a lot of serotonin receptors all over the brain. So then it has to be a specific selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So you're like, okay, well, there's more of this type of serotonin receptor in this part of the brain. So maybe we'll target more of it, but you're still blanketing the brain. It's still not just affecting that one area. Mm-hmm. So what, 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 and so psychiatry, unfortunately, hasn't really made huge significant um, developments in terms of drug treatment in the last 50 years. I mean, there hasn't been, there's been sort of minor variations on things, but not really huge leaps, right? Mm -hmm. Which is because of the complexity of the brain. However, there are patients who are treatment resistant. So they've tried all these different drugs, nothing's working, tried therapy, even electric shock therapy. And then they have this deep brain stimulation where you actually go in with electrodes, you implant them in actually for depression, the anterior cingulate, this part of the brain where we know is involved is part of that depression circuit. Mm -hmm. And it's does help a significant um, number of people. Are you electrically stimulating that part of the brain? Yeah, you put in these tiny electrodes and they're implanted and they're connected to a battery pack that's implanted under your chest um, uh, wall there and and so they're permanently implanted Mm. and they're controlled by remote control and you're constantly stimulating this network. Now, exactly how it works, we still don't know. Is it stimulating a faulty connection between areas Mm -hmm. um, or is it knocking out something that wasn't working properly or you know there are various different ideas about what it's actually doing right but it compared to let's say electric shock therapy where you know you don't know what's happening in the brain you just kind of re-jump yeah rebooting yeah rebooting unplug the computer turn it off and turn it back on yeah and something happens and it works but there's a lot of side effects and there's memory issues that happen with this it's much more targeted and it seems to have results but of course you want the first line treatment to be drugs if we can come up with better drugs that's great but first we need to understand the etiology or the cause of the disorder better and that's still very complicated so now i'm just curious because um that's fascinating um when you're so your prefrontal cortex how do you get to that and the anterior singlet for that surgery because if you're talking about an implantation there has to be a surgery involved right Yes. Okay. Yes. So what do you do? You go in through the nose or? No, no, no. You it's actually. You drill burr holes in the skull. Oh, no! Yeah, no, it's serious. It's neurosurgery. Oh, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> but we call it, but it's it's actually considered minimally invasive surgery. Oh, yeah. You just put an extra <laughs> hole in my head. <laughs> I need that surgery like I need another <laughs> hole in my head. Well, exactly. funny you should say that. But because... you think, I mean, you think about these people who are are suffering for years. I mean, their lives are not, you know, for many of them, not worth living. And this is a last resort. And what they used to do is actually go in and actually lesion those parts of the brain. And at that point, you know, now they're established the brain. If it doesn't work, you have a damn, it's permanent. This is adjustable, reversible. The patient is awake during the surgery. I mean, it's really... There's no nerve endings in the brain. The brain doesn't feel anything. Right, so you right. just do local anesthetic on the scalp, make a tiny incision, little, little burr hole, you know, <laughs> and then you you just you slip this tiny little wire in through. 
it's not that big of a deal. I do it every day. Well, you know, listen. I'm just, I'm just picturing you as a doctor explaining this procedure right, 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 to somebody. Right, right. Yeah. Just So what we're going to do is we're just going to uh, drill a tiny little hole in your head. Right. Well, you know, it's not even, I mean, like I, and I'm not the one doing the surgery just yeah, right. to, to show me. I'm not a nurse surgeon, but I'll do assessments like right. during the, the procedure and pre and post. But um What's interesting is you're not they're often you're not convincing the patient. Oh, you should just do this procedure. A lot of times they're coming to you like, please, do I qualify for this? Can oh. I get this procedure done? I've heard about this, you okay. know. So it's something that people are looking at as as like almost a last resort. But this might actually help, and and it does. And and this has been used for people with movement disorders for for many years. So okay. it's like to treat Parkinson's disorder and a lot of different types of the uh, the movement disorders. So it's a it's a very well established procedure. It's just that the use of it for treating different psychiatric illnesses is relatively new, but it's been going on for, for quite some time now and for OCD and depression. Cool. Hey man, uh, Tim, uh, um, uh, that was a really, really good uh, question. Let's go with Matt Harefield. Mm-hmm. Okay. Matt Harefield coming from us, uh, coming to us from Facebook wants to know this. How many mental illnesses can be observed through some external means, like an EEG? So the short answer is it's actually very difficult to observe a mental illness with an EEG. It gives you one bit of information, mm-hmm. um, which is part of a larger picture. You really, it's a lot of it is subjective. You have to talk to the patient and see what they're feeling. Feelings you can't see on an EEG or an sure. fMRI. You Could can you see- confirm something? Um, like on an MRI or an EEG? I mean, it could give you more data to back up the diagnosis, mm-hmm. but you can never make a diagnosis just based on neuro- looking at neural activation in the gotcha. brain. Um, one person might look like they have depression, and then they say, no, I feel fine. You know, So it's it's just it sort of backs up the evidence, but really the best bit of information is what the patient is telling you subjectively. And with that, I think we will take a short break, but we'll be back with more of your cosmic queries about mental health and the brain when Star Talk All-Stars returns. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm Heather Berlin, your All Star host, and I'm here with my co-host Chuck Nice. Yes, and since you're a neuroscientist, you can call me crazy, Chuck Nice. (laughs) (laughs) And don't write. Don't write, people. Please don't write. Go ahead. (laughs) So we've been taking your questions about mental health and the brain. So Chuck, Crazy Chuck, what do you have for us? I love you, Heather. You're the best. (laughs) Oh, man. But you know what? Well, forget it. I'm not going to get into that. Here, let's do this. Brandon McDougal wants to know this. Um, I've suffered from depression since I was a young age. All right, that was Is he my, Scottish? No, nah, that was my Scottish. Is it Brandon McDougal? Oh, yeah, see? see? You know, so... But at least you knew it was Scottish. Yeah, that's true. So it had to be that a good. It had good. to be that good, right? Good. Because yeah, you, yeah. you didn't I mean, say you like you. Did, you just went right to Scottish. So yeah, you know. Yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> good job. Here we go. I've suffered from depression since a young age, and pharmaceuticals haven't helped me. A psychiatrist even admitted me once. Uh, current drug treatments are like being blindfolded and throwing darts. Do you think with the advances in technology and bioengineering, there will be a more effective individualized treatment in the future? Yeah. What might those look like? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. first of all, Brandon, let me just say that I'm, I'm 
terribly sorry for your predicament, and I'm sure that it is extremely difficult mm -hmm. and that uh, we wish you all the best. Yeah. I mean that sincerely, but go ahead. Absolutely. So, um, you know, as I mentioned before, one of the advances in treatment for things like depression uh, is this deep brain stimulation. But however, looking even further into the future, I think we are moving closer toward personalized medicine to actually looking at your particular genome. Because... Right. Because depression, it might, the phenotype might be expressed. The end point might look the same. Mm -hmm. right? The symptoms might look the same. But the underlying cause might vary. And so, and there's even things called situational depression. And there's things that are more related to underlying biology and genetics. And so if we can start looking at your particular genome, mm -hmm. even ultimately, I mean, I would love for in the future, before the disease actually develops and you're in this situation with these severe symptoms, mm -hmm. to start early on to maybe even modify the genome uh, to eliminate the development of depression or find ways to biomarkers, as we call them, to identify it early on before the symptoms develop and come up with interventions to preventatively kind of either either prevent it from expressing itself um, or, you know, if there's such a thing as a cure to, to cure it. Now, you know, I think we're far away from that for sure. Um, but these interventions that are looking at um, like, like stimulating specific regions in the brain are certainly an alternative to the drug treatment because I, I understand where he's coming from. I mean, there are patients where, you know, there's a certain segment of the population with depression where our drugs, they work and they do their thing. But there's a significant number of others where they don't and there were just people just, you know, a lot of times psychiatrists and I work in psychiatry. I'm not, you know, but they're just throwing these different medications at them. And a lot of time it's more of an art than a science. It's sort of like what combination of drugs might work and yeah. based on the symptom profile. But we really need to look at each individual's symptoms and their trajectory and the underlying neural circuitry to come up with better treatments. And now um, with that in mind, is it possible that uh, I'm just asking as a, not even as an addendum to this, just based on what you said. Right. Can these type of um, illnesses be like, uh, like certain types of cancer where they get worse as time goes on. For instance, is there a degradation then and an exacerbation that happens with time and lack of treatment so that it can get worse and worse? Or is it just kind of like you, you, it just rolls along as it, do, as it does? Yeah, I think that um, it's different than, let's say, cancer or neurodegenerative disorders, which are where they progressively get worse over time, or even something like epilepsy. I mean, somebody, if you have untreated epilepsy, it actually can have start causing, um, ha have cognitive effects. So you want to treat it early on. Um, a lot of the psychiatric illnesses, it's more of just a quality of life issue. I mean, the longer you're suffering, the symptoms may get worse over time. Or let's say you have bipolar disorder. Each time you go into a sort of a depressive episode or a pneumatic episode, it may get worse. But that's not necessarily the case. Uh, not so, the case. Yeah. No, it's not like the more let's say, depressive episodes you have, the worse they're the going to get. get. Right. Or the more manic episodes, the worse you're going to get. So, so I mean, I'd say no, um, but it's more of the, the, the fact of the suffering or the quality of life issue or, mm -hmm. you know, or, you know, the let's say you're so severely depressed, you can't go out and get a job or whatever. You know, the right. longer that goes untreated, the worse off your life circumstances are going to be. Right. Not necessarily if the symptoms get 
worse. Right, right. Okay. Wow. So, hey, man, uh, Brandon, sorry for that, but, you know, there may be um, a, a, a brighter future, uh, depending on the advancements Absolutely. that are made, yeah. you know? Yeah. Let's, let's certainly hope so. Mm-hmm. Um, let us move on. And before we do, let me just ask you this, because, mm-hmm. okay, this is one of my favorite topics in the world, you know, is, is, is neuroscience. And the brain, I just think the brain is just so incredible. And I really think that most of what we do is our brain doing something and we don't even know why we're doing it. Absolutely. Like our brain is like just going. And so there's a lot of what we do and we are kind of on uh, this autopilot that we don't even know that we're on Mm -hmm. and we think we're making decisions. Yes. Only to find out that those decisions were predetermined in our brain based on something that happened to us previous to this particular moment where we made the decision. Yes. You, you, so, okay, so. I'm, oh, yes. Oh, this is yes? Yes, yes. You are right. Awesome. <laughs> this is awesome. Okay, I'm so glad to hear that. So now with that, here's yeah. my question. Mm-hmm. Is there a way to become cognizant enough to control your brain so that you can actually make decisions mm-hmm. as they arise. Love that question. I love that. So, I am a huge I mean a lot of actually the work that I've done has been about this, about the neural basis of these unconscious processes yes. that are really the things that are determining our behavior and affecting the decisions that we make. And we come up with these post hoc explanations about why we do things which are usually not really the real reason why we made that decision. And a lot of times we're on autopilot and we're rerunning this program that's been running. And a lot of what psychotherapy does is it tries to be an objective observer of a person's behavior and their decision making and point out the pattern of their behavior. Absolutely. Become more aware and can maybe break the cycle. Yes. Right. So I think the first step is bringing those patterns, those unconscious like autopilot programs into awareness, into consciousness, mm-hmm. and then maybe reintegrating those sort of pre-running programs in new ways, developing new neural circuits. But I think there's something about, and we don't know exactly why, there's something about bringing them into consciousness that can help you perhaps overcome them. Not completely. I mean, I think, you know, we are in some ways a slave to our biology to a certain point. There's malleability. I mean, if we're, or else psychotherapy wouldn't work at all. Right. Um, But I think one of the key things that we can do is get insight into our unconscious processes, bring them to the surface, and try to live more in sync with our sort of long-term goals Mm -hmm. to get more healthy. So if you know, you become aware, you know what, I have this predilection towards, you know, impulsive behavior in in certain domain, whatever. Maybe it's chocolate. I don't know. You can't, you know that. So you can start to structure your environment so that, you know, I'm not going to put chocolate in my house. I know because now I'm aware that I have this weakness. Let's say I'm using a very minor thing, you know, obviously this. No, that's not minor. No, no, you actually, for a moment, I thought you were talking about me because like right now what I'm trying to do is uh, quit sugar. Right. And I got to tell you, um, it's like the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. So hard. I mean, sugar is is addictive. And and actually my husband, because sugar is when people ask me about Alzheimer's, how can I prevent Alzheimer's? There's a genetic, you have, um, if you have this this gene APOE4, you have more of a 
predilection to have Alzheimer's. And my husband has is homozygous for this. So he has a really high chance of getting Alzheimer's. And what's the one thing you do to prevent it is actually cut sugar from your diet. Oh. It has a lot to do with the disease process and inflammation in the brain. So he keeps trying to cut sugar, but he just can't do it. And I'm looking at him like, you are an addict. So now what do we have to do? You can't trust your instincts. We need to remove the sugar from the house. You need to just not be exposed to it. And, you know, we can't, we're not all, I mean, we're, we're animals, we're creatures on this earth. So we don't always have control over these basal basic instincts. So sometimes you have to understand what your predilections are or your tendencies and try to create an environment that's going to push you into a certain direction, maybe to moderate your behavior a bit. Right. But having awareness, I think, is the first step. And things like meditation, you know, being having sort of quieting the mind, listening to your inner voice. I think things like improv, where you can shut off that kind of prefrontal cortex and allow these unconscious processes to come to the surface, will help. All these things are ways to increase your own awareness of your thoughts and behavior, and then maybe you can modify them. Cool. Wow. Well, that's that question. Well, thank you. I'm glad I asked it. It's fantastic. Uh, Let's go to Derek. Uh, Ailshire, Ailshire, Derek Ailshire um, says this, have you found a link between uh, the brain and addiction? Um, that's, I mean, uh, uh, that, that's kind of um, broad, but I will say this. What is the link between the brain and mm-hmm. addiction because yeah. there is def- that is right. the link. The, addi- the link to addiction is your brain. Right. So that's all there is to that. But what inside your brain yes. in the addictive process makes that link happen? So there's a number of, there's a neuro circuit involved. It's, it's actually the dopaminergic circuit in the brain. So dopamine is kind of a um, related to the feeling of pleasure when it's released hey. in certain parts of the Feel brain. Feel good. Right. <laughs> so you have dopamine. <laughs> <laughs> so when a part of the brain, the nucleus accumbens, which is an evolutionarily older subcortical part of the brain, when it receives some dopamine, mm-hmm. you get that feeling of pleasure. And and certain drugs can trigger that right. activation there. Certain behaviors can trigger that. And now what we find is if you look at a rat, and there's been studies where they implant electrodes directly into this pleasure center of the brain, the nucleus accumbens, and that, or that tract, that dopaminergic tract. Right. And they allow them to self-stimulate by pressing a bar or a lever in their cage. Mm-hmm. And then they give them a choice. Like, you can be food-deprived. You can either get a pellet and eat when you're mm-hmm. starving, or you can get that can direct stimulation. Yeah. They're going to go for the direct stimulation over, over food, the food, over water if they're water-deprived, over, w- over sex if they're sex. Like, well, you know, if they present them with a mate, to the point of exhaustion, to the point of sometimes death because they're not eating, they're not drinking, they're just getting that direct. Play. Wow. So you can see that same behavior if you extrapolate into you know humans with addictions it's you just want that hit whether you get it from coke or whether you get it from you know gambling or even in like being on stage can can activate it you know some people are addicted to like they need to perform they got to get on stage they need the adulation Uh, let me clearly you wouldn't know about that but clearly (laughs) let me tell you i i there's nothing i can do my wife has said this to me she's Mm. like you are a different person if you don't go on stage. It's like you need to go get a fix. Yeah, and she yeah. actually said it like that. Yeah, and I, 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 it probably is the case. My husband's the same way. I'm like, you know, do you want to do anything? He's like, I'm an entertainer. I like to get on stage. He doesn't feel as ever as good doing anything else than well, maybe some things. <laughs> we won't get into that. <laughs> but he gets a high. He gets a buzz from yeah. being on stage, and yeah. that's in. 
mean, there are positive addictions. You know, you're going to get addicted to exercise. Anything to an extreme is not going to be healthy, right? right? You know, if you're over-exercising or whatever. Um, but if you can funnel your kind of addicted addictions into healthy habits, that could be a good thing. It's a good thing. Yeah. 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 Wow. All right, man. Way to go. Okay, Derek. There you go. Um, let's see here. Um, this is... Oh, God. Vincere Diem. Diem. Vince... Vincere Diem, Diem 6. I, I, I think it's like Carpe Diem, but like Vince Diem or whatever. Okay. But it's on, from clever. Instagram. He's being okay. clever, I think. That's his Instagram <laughs> name, and he's being very clever. Okay. And he says, I'm a Navy veteran with PTSD. Wow. What is neurologically different about the way my brain functions now? compared to my pre-Navy life? Right. Wow, what a great question. So has there been studies to look at a PTSD brain um, as opposed to a normal, not normal, but yeah. a non-PTSD brain? Yeah, there, there have been um, neuroimaging studies that look at PTSD brains, let's say, versus non-PTSD. There are differences in amygdala size. Amygdala mm. has to do with um, emotion, processing emotions. Is that the fight-or-flight type? Yes. That's yeah, the yeah. yeah. Um, you know, like when you're when you're in these stressful environments, especially when they're repeated, you know, you're under constant stress, you're getting this cortisol release right. constantly, you become hypervigilant and you know, over time it has long term it you know, you can get changes in the brain. Um and the hippocampus as well. So a lot of the times they have the hippocampus, the memory part of the brain, which is affected and they have these flashbacks, you know, they just are in, or these intrusive thoughts, they just keep coming back. Because look, our brain it's adaptive to remember an event. Like we use high emotion and adrenaline to tag an event as significant. You want to remember that because that'll help you survive. You know, if you saw a lion over there in the bush, you want to remember that, but like don't go near that bush. Mm -hmm. So they tag these as being important memories. But the problem is if you're under this constant high adrenaline, high emotion, you know, these are horrible memories, you know, friends dying next to you, all that. And now you can't get these things out of your head. Right. Um, And there's some studies which look at actually resilience. Like they'll take um, soldiers and who've all been exposed to the same trauma, why is it that some go on and develop PTSD and others don't? And there's some things that are preventative. If you are born with a larger um, hippocampus or, uh, sorry, a larger amygdala, they might prevent, there might be some factors that are that are protective mm-hmm. against um, developing PTSD, but there's a lot we still have to learn. Wow, that is something else. So what happens if it's not like combat related, but it's just like, you? okay, Maybe you embarrass yourself socially on a right. regular basis, and then like you relive those things. They you can't get them out your head. Like right. you feel as though like oh man, I shouldn't have said that. That was terrible. But right. every time you remember it, it's like super painful. Right. Well, I'm not talking about me. Scale. I'm just saying. Yeah. Right. Right. Suppose that just that's like more rumination about you know. <laughs> I guess. Well, we'll have a longer discussion about that later, John. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Um, Okay, I think we will take another short break and we'll be right back to answer more of your queries about mental health and the brain. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm Heather Berlin, your All Star host, and I'm here with my co-host Chuck Nice. Crazy Chuck Nice to you. Easy Chuck, and okay. we're here to answer your question. Don't write. I swear <laughs> to God, do not write. Don't tweet. Nothing. It's a joke. Yeah. 
Okay. We don't like to use the word crazy. I know that's in the, the mental health. That's the deal. Nobody wants to say. Nobody yeah. says crazy in the mental health field. Yeah. That's why I'm saying it. I'm. Call, it's called being provocative. I'm actually provoking you. You're gonna get hate mail. I am gonna get hate mail. So we are. I'm only calling myself crazy. I never call anyone else crazy. Okay. Okay. Uh, you've been redeemed. So <laughs> we're here talking about mental health and yes. the brain. We've got some cosmic queries here, and uh, this next question is brought to you by my radar, the world's most popular radar weather app with over 35 million downloads mm. not bad huh mm-hmm. well, they're doing okay <laughs> <laughs> i don't think i've ever gotten 14 million of anything yeah 35 well, 35 million 35 million to, who know wow look wow. at that all right here we go it says what can you tell us about mental health and the brain and the aftermath of a natural disaster like a hurricane mm. very very current uh is there anything people in the disaster zone can do before, during, and after the event. Wow. So how do you protect your mental health mm-hmm. from a hurricane yeah. or a natural disaster? Right. So these natural disasters, I mean, you take something like even 9-11 or, or a, you know, a hurricane or things that... Um, are kind of out of your control. Yeah. And people, it's a traumatic event. People are traumatized. They, if any time when you're either your own um, personal safety or life is at risk or someone near you, um, there, you know, there's life and death situations around you. Um, can be traumatic. And so what people, uh, what programs have done is try to immediately after, in the aftermath, the sooner you can get to people, the better in terms of having um, a kind of psychological debriefing. Like get people, you want to, you don't want them to, the worst thing is you, you have these traumatic experiences and you hold it all inside and you try to suppress it, you try to keep it. So the best thing to do is just talk about it, talk about it with people, get it out, explore it, analyze, you know, process it, we say. You, know, you want to process this so it doesn't linger. You know, Freud had it right in some respects that when you suppress things in the unconscious and don't deal with them, they will come up in other ways. Interesting. You know, so yeah. so if you can just really get it out there so you're not, it's not lingering in the background, as painful it might be, it's a talk about some of these things because it will be and maybe you know maybe right away you're not ready but maybe you know you need a week or two but to keep track of people and have mental health resources available for them in the direct aftermath of a trauma even up to a month later um i think is key to help prevent some of these you know people going on to develop ptsd it doesn't always prevent it but it might even prevent it might even make the symptoms less severe yeah um even if you do go on to express ptsd Wow, that's um, that's actually very good advice. And talking about it, you know, is difficult for a lot of people. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. Um, everybody says talk about it. I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest right now. I, I, I hate when people say that. I'm gonna be honest. Like somebody said to, not, somebody said to me, uh, "Are you normally not honest?" Right. And I was like, "Actually, I'm normally not honest. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a stand up comic. I'm sorry. I can't. I lie all the time." Um, <laughs> <laughs> they looked at me like I was insane. Um, but um, so I've recently, um, I guess for the last few months, started therapy. Mm, and it's talk therapy. Yeah. And um, I have to say Wait, that. You don't come to me? What? I didn't no, know just... you did talk therapy. I thought you just did brain <laughs> yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little both. You really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, you'd be too close. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, that wouldn't you be cool. You want to be somebody agnostic. Yeah, exactly. I know too much. I'd be hedging everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to tell you this, Heather, but you judge me. Okay. So, um, but it's going well. I actually like the therapist. Good. 
which, you know, I've been in therapy before, but I didn't like the therapist. That makes a big difference. But his office was amazing. <laughs> and I actually kept going to him for like a whole year because I loved his office so much. <laughs> and I sat there in his office. I was just looking around just like, oh my God, you have such great taste. Like... <laughs> Did nothing for And him. I hated him. Right. I hated the guy. But that's actually key. Just as a side note, um, a lot of studies look at, there's different forms of therapy. You know, there's cognitive behavioral therapy. There's right. psychoanalytic therapy. There's all these different kind of genres of within the therapy. And they do these comparative studies and say which works best and whatever. And the thing that they find that is really the most significant effect is is the kind of what we call transference, counter-transference. It's basically the relationship right. between you and the therapist. It's just the relationship that you form. I mean, yeah, what the therapist has to say, you know, is, is good. But a lot of it is having that connection that has a lot to do with the healing. But anyway. I, I like the fact that when you said what he has to say, he actually does say stuff to me. Right, that's good. You know what I mean? Yeah, Which is good. Of, the other guy, he would just let me talk. Right. Right? And then like, I'd be mm-hmm, like, and then mm-hmm. at the end, I'd say, okay. And he'd be like, Okay. And I'm just like, you're a douche. That's what's okay. Anyway. um, (laughs) Um, But, um, you know. So you're going now. It's working well. It's working well. And so what is it about talking Mm. that makes things better? What? Now, because I'm. I have to be honest, mm-hmm. I'm not that kind of, I don't want to tell you anything. Mm-hmm. I don't want to tell anybody anything. Right. I want to suffer in silence until this crap is over and then I push that down inside and I move on with my life because I'm strong. Right. Okay, so. Really good <laughs> You're like, how's that working out for you, Chuck? I wonder you're a comedian. <laughs> Comedians are some of the work now. Yes, we are. So what is it about the talking? I mean, is there a brain yeah. connection? What happens? There, there What's is. going on with the talking? I mean, there is. It's a, as a, you know, there are different types types of talk therapy so it depends on what the therapy is mm-hmm. certain um, therapy let's say even like exposure therapy like sometimes if you're afraid of something or you're afraid to even talk about it or think about it or you suppress it it, it can it can build up in your mind. You can start to avoid it. It gets worse. It gets worse. When you bring it out into the open, you're exposing yourself to it. You're processing it. So it's not... Um, kind of lingering, causing fear and cortisol and stress and whatever. Like, no, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to talk about it. You kind of face it, face it head on, process it, and it doesn't sort of linger in the background. That's one aspect. I mean, there's there's a lot of different things that are going on in therapy. The other is the therapeutic alliance, right? So that relationship, knowing that you have at least that one person who's agnostic, who you can talk to, who you can just... Um, you know, expose yourself in your hidden fears and your unconscious desires or whatever it may be. Now, to be honest, the actual neural like reason why it works, I don't think we really know. I mean, that's something that I've been interested in. Why does therapy work at the neural level? One idea is that you're, you're regrowing. Let's say you had a traumatic event and right. you suppress it. Now you talk about it in a neutral environment. You're retraining your brain to associate neutral feelings or even positive feelings, if you can, with something that was very associated with something very awful before. So you're kind of retraining your brain. So talk therapy can retrain your brain, your physical brain, in certain um, aspects, depending on what type of talk therapy you're doing. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. So it's almost like you're rewiring your brain through the talking Mm -hmm. by associating it with the neutral environment. Yeah, 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 you're making new associations. Right. You're um, ex- cool. exposing yourself to fears in a in a neutral environment, so they're less threatening. 
awesome. God, this is such fascinating stuff. I swear it's so good. All right, let's go to uh, Mary, Miriam Say Salam. Okay, Miriam says salam. Miriam says salam mm. from Instagram. Okay, finally got it. Okay, she says, in what ways does one's childhood and upbringing affect their mental health during adulthood? Mm. And can someone's childhood experiences be the reason for their mental disorders? Okay, so this is, mm. this is a pretty huge question here. Um, it's just a huge fan and sending lots of love. So yes. that's a really great question. Yes. Um, can you be so screwed up by your parents and the, that you actually have mental disorders when you get older? So the, a lot of the models of, of the expression of mental illness is called the stress model. But basically, again, depending on the disorder, sometimes people are born with a genetic predisposition towards maybe an inclination towards perhaps getting depression or, I don't know, obsessive compulsive disorder. And then external stressors can trigger the expression of that disorder. Oh. Okay, so it could be that the stressor itself, or for example, if you have a very traumatic childhood, well, there's a lot of cortisol being released, it affects the actual development of certain structures of the brain. Like the hippocampus is very sensitive to cortisol. So if you get early exposure to what we call glucocorticoid, basically cortisol, in early on, it will affect the hippocampal development, which can go on and make you more vulnerable to psychiatric illness. So it's not to say that the childhood trauma necessarily causes the disorder, mm -hmm. but it might make for an environment that's not ideal conditions that might cause the expression of a disorder. Right. That being said, we're not um, enslaved to our past experiences. You know, I, they're, they're, you know, I had a traumatic childhood and I think I'm doing okay, you know, okay, okay, there's yeah. some issues, but I'm pretty okay. So, you know, I think we're not, if some people you look at a traumatic childhood and you might say, oh God, that person's going to be totally messed up. Well, that's not true. It's not... You're not sentenced to, let's say, have a mental illness or, you know, um, um, but it does make you more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, and if you are predisposed to have a mental disorder, it's going to increase your chances that it might be expressed, mm -hmm. having that early stressors in your life. And there's the behavioral aspect as well. I mean, if you're around an alcoholic and you're learning that behavior and you're learning aggressive behavior, you know, you'll go on maybe to express it as an adult because that's what you've learned. That's what you've seen. So there's and then you have just the aspects. opposite where people do just the opposite, right. where they're mm -hmm. so traumatized by the fact that they had so a I father or a mother who was an mm -hmm. alcoholic. They just would never, ever ever touch like alcohol yeah yeah and sometimes you say that you know like if you had a bad i don't know parents or whatever you say like i never want to i i want now i know what not to do right. for my kids and right. if you i think look my at children are going to use that model <laughs> i'm going to do whatever chuck, whatever chuck did i am doing, doing the, opposite. the opposite yeah. and i'm going to be a great dad yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow okay so that is um that's really cool so you're not sentenced no i don't think you're sentenced you can cool. you're not a, a victim of your circumstance i mean it might it might suck and you know it's not great to have a, a crappy childhood right. but you can you can overcome it there you go all right let's uh i think we got time for maybe one or maybe two who knows uh Dixon Clinton from Instagram wants to know this. Unlike other illnesses, mental health usually falls on a spectrum. At what point do symptoms dictate the medical diagnosis? So can you have symptoms and not have a, um, a, a, a problem? Mm -hmm. um, so you're expressing symptoms, but you don't really have that. But then you express them to an intensity where it's like, wow, 
you need help. Yeah. Well, first of all, the thing with the diagnostic system is that it's it's very imperfect. And so some, somebody might, you might have this overarching term like depression. Well, that can mean a number of different things. Okay. Um, or, you know, somebody, let's say, who has like borderline personality disorder. That's like a personality disorder. Well, that might be that they can't control their emotions. Their emotions are in, you know, they have instability of emotions. But there might there are other symptoms that they might not have that another person who's diagnosed with BT, um, like let's say depression or borderline personality disorder does have. So there's different constellations of symptoms. If you ever look at our manual, the diagnostic and statistical manual for mental disorders where we, basically you have to have like, let's say seven out of these 10 symptoms to be diagnosed. And maybe you have five of them or whatever. So it's not just about the types of symptoms, but it is about the severity and everybody has a different kind of profile. So there's no clear answer. It's really a way also for clinicians to talk to each other. If I say this person has OCD, that's a way that you can sort of get an idea of what their problem might be. But I might have a person who has contamination type OCD, which is very different than somebody who's like a perfectionist OCD. Right. They're still called the same disorder, right. um, but there's a lot of variability there. So you can have a different constellations of symptoms and, you know, it's really up to the clinician what they're going to label you as. But again, remember, it's just a label. Suppose the manifestation, though, is not affecting your life adversely. Yes. So part of it is how much part of the diagnosis has to do with how much distress it's causing you in your life. Now, but there, however, with the caveat, there are certain disorders where people don't think they have a problem and they're very difficult to treat. Like, for example, narcissistic personality disorder. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, I don't have a problem. I don't need treatment. Right. But everyone around you is saying there's a problem here. So there's certain disorders where the person doesn't have what we call insight into their own symptoms. And those are the most difficult to treat. So usually they're diagnosed when it's causing them significant amount of distress and that's a, a metric of like you know some people might have sadness but they're like you know what it's tolerable it's not so bad and some people are like no I really this is really I can't function I need help and then we start thinking about diagnoses um, but others don't think they have a problem but everyone around them thinks they have a problem and that you know or like some even schizophrenics who think no like I'm right, really hearing things there's nothing wrong with me but everyone else doesn't see the things they see god this is always so good so I love talking to you as always, but we have to end here, Chuck. And you've been listening to Star Talk All Stars. Thanks to Chuck for helping us out tonight. My pleasure. And I've been your host, Heather Berlin. Until next time, stay curious. 